Have you ever, um, have you ever heard of the, uh, like when people say like the great tree of yoga? Yeah. So the lineages of our practices come from Krishnamacharya, Iyengar, and Patabi Joyce. So this wisdom practice that we all practice, whether it's yin or restorative or a vinyasa flow or um, a meditation practice that's grounding you in body, mind, and spirit to be a really awesome person, um, all of these lineages kind of like um, come uh, in, they all kind of like filter into all the practices that we've done. So if you say like, oh, I've never done Iyengar yoga, only those of us who started a long time ago um, might have tried Iyengar yoga. But it is in and a part of um, everything that we do in our practices. So you do kind of do Iyengar yoga. And you'll see in some of the poses that we practice today. Um, I want to tell you all about this luminary and legend who died at 95 years old. And at the top of your um, sheet, um, you have a two-page handout, front and back. Um, it gives you kind of the overview of Iyengar. And um, on top of it, though, it, it has a quote, um, which I love. And I've used in uh, many um, uh, uh, practices or intentions over the 18 years that I've been teaching. Um, and it says, yoga is a light which, um, uh, which will never dim. The brighter you practice, the brighter the flame. So Iyengar himself never retired. He believed he was a student of yoga, and he would repeatedly explain and spent over 80 years revisiting the first principles of the vast subject that is yoga. He had a really, really full life. Does anybody like the BBC? Yes. Or like watching YouTube videos? Mm -hmm. I highly recommend you uh, watch some YouTube videos about him and his family. He got married when he was like 18, 19 years old. So his wife and his kids all are part of this whole business of yoga that still has a place in India. Um, his full life um, created this incredible legacy. Some people know of Iyengar yoga as, I'm going to say a kind of negative word, but um, that Hitler created. But a lot of people call Iyengar people yoga Nazis, right? Because they're very militant and they're very specific. So one of the things that he's kind of known um, because of his hands-on teaching method is, and it became a joke, um, but beat, kick, and shout, because he did a lot of that. And um, it's, it's uh, kind of weird, because like if we saw someone do that to someone in the parking lot of the grocery store, we'd be calling the police, right? If they were doing that to a, uh, their partner, their child, or anything like that. But this was kind of a big part of the practice, uh, of beating, kicking, and shouting, and stepping on people, and all of that kind of stuff. Because the method had, or there was a, kind of like a method to the madness or the way that he um, taught. Okay? Um, more than anyone, Iyengar is responsible for bringing yoga from the east to the west. That's kind of cool, right? 
We have this great tree in the, the path of wisdom that yoga brings to us as human beings, but the lineages that came over here, Krishnamacharya, which is on your reading list, correct? Um, Iyengar um, and uh, uh, Patabi Joyce's Ashtanga practices, those were the three that kind of really started filtering into the United States in like the 70s. A musician actually brought Iyengar over to um, the United States. Um, I have it written down because I can never pronounce it. He was a... Yes, there you go, a violinist. And uh, he had a disease that came on and he was having a hard time performing and he went to Iyengar and Iyengar helped heal him just like Iyengar was healed as a child and was brought over to the States because of this um, wondrous healing, this miraculous change that happened in the musician's life. Um, so he really was responsible more than anyone for bringing yoga um, here and making it a householder name. Um, another thing too is he was a prolific writer and it says it on your sheet. He's the author of a book called Light on Yoga which was published in 1966 and he's the author of 14 books and I'm digging behind me as I'm talking to you because this book I've already had like three of them, right? This is like it at first was the yoga teacher's Bible and mine like has fallen apart and it's, I've had to get more books and stuff like that. So I highly recommend that you get this beautiful book that is not on your reading list, which pisses, <laughs> pisses the shit out of me. So I'll pass it around. Um, but he has written and authored over um, uh, 14 books so the foundation that he um, laid in January 1973, he started the um, Ramani Iyengar Memorial Yoga Institute, which is kind of why they say um, uh, uh, where he really started building up this idea of something that he was called was a furniture yogi. Have you ever talked to an Iyengar person and they say like we did yoga with a chair? Have you ever talked to an Iyengar person and said, we wrapped gauze around our eyes and practiced without seeing? That's the freaking coolest practice. I highly recommend it. You like cover your eyes and you practice without seeing so that you really start tapping in and honing into your six senses and that higher state of consciousness and conscious awareness. Um... Uh, they usually start their practices with inversions, maybe using chairs to protect the shoulders so that the neck is free. So that he was the furniture yogi because he used a lot of props. And at first, our blocks weren't these beautiful Target boutique foam blocks or um, cork blocks that some studios have, but they were like pieces of wood that were blocks. So it wasn't very forgiving uses a lot of blankets and stuff like that. But this was a really big way because his whole thing was to teach remedial and therapeutic yoga. And it says on your front sheet that um, BKS Iyengar um, developed this type of Hatha yoga practice that's focus was on alignment as well as a union of the body and the mind and your soul. This style has a strong emphasis on detail, precision, and props and especially alignment in the performance of posture and breath control. The poses that he teaches are held for long periods and often modified with these props, this furniture yogi. 
Um, and the method designed to systematically cultivate strength, flexibility, stability, awareness, and can be therapeutic for specific conditions to break barriers and become free from disease. When um, Iyengar um, started um, doing yoga, um, he was a victim of, and it says again on the front of your sheet, he was a victim of malaria, typhoid, and tuberculosis in his childhood. He was all kinds of effed up, right? And, you know, like here in the States, we might put a kid who has scoliosis into a brace. We might have a child who has like breathing problems and they used to put them in those chambers. <laughs> you know, like um, there's all kinds of different ways that our Western culture and science and medicine has devised to heal someone. But in Eastern philosophies, they healed people um, and taught themselves how to strengthen themselves um, uh, against disease through the practice of yoga. So he was sent to his wife's husband, who miraculously was Krishnamacharya. Sister's husband, yeah, sorry. Oh yeah, that would have been weird, right? I didn't say I was smart. Uh, but I got, I, yeah. So he was sent when he was, and it says there, um, when he was like 14 years old. And he was um, introduced to his guru, Krishnamacharya. Oh good, at least I wrote it down right. Thanks. <laughs> um, in Mysore. And um, he started teaching. Um, and he really, really realized through this um, healing practice that he went through, which was really arduous and really challenging and not so pretty, um, um, as he evolved and as he practiced the discipline of yoga, right? Because yoga, what's the definition of yoga? Union, Union right? Balance, harmony. So to relieve pain and suffering... We need to find harmony in our lives. And um, yoga is skill in action. It's really, really interesting because yoga isn't always about what we think of it in the West, like a pretty picture or a pretty fluid movement. A lot of times yoga is very um, uh, challenging. And sometimes maybe even painful because you have to have a breakdown to break through. In this skill in action where you're working um, to balance your body-mind connection, you're not just working the physical, right? You're working your emotional states of being in your psyche, so it's physiological. And then you, as you work the bones and the tissues and the muscles, you're also starting to work into the systems, so as things start to change, we can reframe our body-mind connection. He was very, very adamant, um, and he learned this as a child, that we can rewrite our own autobiographies. Doesn't that give you chills? Yeah. So to me... He was like a, a, um, an occupational therapist, right? He was taught that this practice of yoga can heal you if you practice the discipline. And the discipline is habitual. 
Uh, how many of you started your New Year's resolutions? How many of you are still doing your New Year's resolutions? Right? So I'm like you. So uh, uh, how many of you stopped, got to an age where you realize New Year's resolutions are crazy? Life has to be a habitual practice. And practice, practice, practice. Um, that, but this is Patabi Joyce now. He said all is coming. So this habitual practice, even though it might not have felt really good at first and it was very painful and there was a lot of um, uh, suffering that might have gone through in the practice, Iyengar realized that you could um, strengthen yourself against disease through the practice of yoga, the art and the science of the body-mind connection. Even in 2004, he was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. There's a Google Doodle of him, which is really cute. You should Google it. And then when you click on it, it'll tell you everything that I'm telling you today. But they give a whole life story about him. Um, because he opened this um, foundation, his institute in um, Pune, uh, Pune um, it, it, he was often called the Great Lion of Pune because people could hear him roar. Right? Because he beat, kicked, and shouted. <laughs> um, he um, was a revolutionary yogi, but in private, he was um, really conservative, Indian, and true to his culture and his spiritual beliefs of his Brahmin heritage. Yeah? Yeah. So um, he st stuck within the philosophy that he was, um, you know, really raised at a young age. And he became a teacher, but he was always a student. So um, I always make a joke because um, um, he was this poetic and elegant wordsmith and wrote all of these books, but he always um, uh, shared his knowledge and he had a passion to live to learn, right? Which I think is really cool because as yogis, we're seekers. And if you think you know something, or if you feel like your ego's getting a little big as a teacher, be really freaking scared. If you're not apprehensive or if you're not a little flutter in the heart before you start teaching, you got to check yourself. Because you always, always, always have to continue to learn. I have over five, um, 500 hour teacher trainings under my belt and I still feel like a novice. And I will never ever feel that I have the knowledge like Iyengar. And I think that's really cool, is that he was this incredible prolific writer and this incredible teacher, but he never stopped. He never like did some of the stuff that you're hearing that is happening in our culture right now with teachers, you know? And lots of disciplines evolved from Iyengar yoga, but it's still at the basis of it. It is this amazing teacher that was passed on from his teacher. And that's why he's called a Guruji, because people would see him as the teacher's teacher who never stopped learning. Um, and that's, to me, what makes him such a legend uh, because of what he did. And the other thing that was really cool, too, is that he never courted celebrity. Um, he was always um, not interested in creating any kind of a cult. He said that yoga was his way of life. And um, so I'm just reading this. Um, he had um, thousands and thousands of students 
but um, his practice was really ethical and sincere. The popularity of yoga and my part in spreading its teachings are not a great source of satisfaction to me, he once declared, but I do not want widespread popularity to eclipse the depth of what it has to give the practitioner. Yoga has always, he insisted, um, yoga, he insisted, should be hard work, and his teaching was exacting and focused as he drew the best from his students. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, what's really interesting is um, as he um, started teaching and stuff, he really, and this is back to the front page of your sheet, he um, didn't certify teachers until they had, and I gave you some websites to look at if you wanted to learn more. Um, he didn't um, certify teachers until they had done over two years of rigorous training. Um, and, um, and then subsequent intermediate levels. So it's really hard to become a teacher of Iyengar yoga. And um, um, he believed that um, the practice is the way to teach the yoga sutras and the eight-limb path. What's the eight-limb path called? Ashto, Ashtanga, Ashtanga yoga which is what Patabi Joyce named his series. But this eight-limb path of yoga, uh, Iyengar believe, was a method to silencing the vibrations of the chitta, right? And those of you who studied or are going to be studying the Yoga Sutras with me, his whole practice was based on the philosophy of the Yoga Sutras. And the, like, the first precept um, or the first or couple lines of it, it starts off with ata, now is the time. So we're always beginning again. But then one of the first three lines of the sutras of these 196 aphorisms was chitta vritti narodaha. What's chitta? Right? The mind, the monkey mind, the chatter, those, the, and what's the vritti? It's what I just did with my hand. It's the turnings, right? Those ruminating thoughts, right? Chitta vritti narodaha. Iyengar believed that yoga is the method of silencing the vibrations of the chitta. And then energetically, we can change our lives. Yoga is our autobi our body is our autobiography and we can rewrite it. He talked a lot about how north, south, east, and west, your body is a treasure map, and you can literally explore yourself for the entire time of your practice and always keep learning. And all the riches of the Raja Yoga practice, of the Hatha Yoga practice, are within, right? But we have to calm that mental mind stuff. How many people have started meditating but stopped meditating because they're like, Oh yeah, it sucks. <laughs> right? I right? Or even when you're practicing, say you're a hatha yoga yogi and you practice yoga, and then all of a sudden you like um, are in the middle of your practice. And like, I'm supposed to be breathing, but I'm thinking about what's happening, or am I on the schedule? Do I have to teach, or did I forget to give my kids some food, or did I forget to like lock the door, or right? Mm -hmm. It's so hard to stop those turnings 
But if we can find a way to create some ease and steadiness, um, that's the way that we can be really into this moment-to-moment -moment awareness practice. And so, you know me, I like words. So I have, um, Iyengar used to always say that the breath is the king of the mind. So that way to calm the fluctuations of the mind, and he has a book just on pranayama, and um, the way to um, calm the fluctuations of the mind is through really deep breath work practices, pranayama. Uh, he also said that you may be able to do yoga, but one in a million is called a yogi because of that. Right? That's pretty interesting to me. It's like, you know, because we're all walking around like I'm like a guru or I'm a master or like I have like a million follows on social media. I must be a really good freaking yogi. To me, that's not really what the practice is about. To him, for sure, it wasn't what the practice is about. He never retired. He never stopped. Oh, he did stop practicing, but he never stopped practicing until close to the end, right? He really, really, really lived the, and, and you know, like walked the walk and talked the talk to the best of his ability with his experience. Um, in line with that um, theory, the popularity of yoga and my part in spreading its teachings are a great source of satisfaction to me but I do, do not want this widespread popularity to eclipse the depth of what it has given uh, to the practitioner. That's cool. And there's a quote I put after the Chittavritti concept on your sheet in, that relates to that. Yoga doesn't change the way we see things, right? And we know that as yogis, that's like drishti, our perceptions, all that stuff. Um, but it transforms the person who sees. You know, you're always bringing yourself back to what it has to give to you. Um, if you go to your questions start of your practice thing, I asked you a homework question to ponder. Discipline, technique, perfection, precision. Do you like to set limitations or do you like to have more freedom to flow in your personal practice? And then ask yourself the question why and dive deeper into that in a meditation kind of a way. Um, if you flip the page, it then asks you, um, how many poses are associated with Iyengar yoga? So there's over 200 poses that um, uh, Iyengar has. There's tons of them in this beautiful book, Light on Yoga. But there's also, if you look, um, some of the interesting poses, um, there's a guy named Dharma Mitra who captured 908 poses. He took pictures of them so you can see. 
There's lots of poses. It, it all relates to the great tree of yoga. Maybe there are more than 200 poses. And what um, was the name of that person again? Dharma Mitra. Is that online? Like, or is it a book or something? You can get like uh, uh, sarongs with it on there. Oh, okay. It's like there's posters of it. Yeah. But he's a, um, a yogi in New York City. Did he come here like years ago, like 15, 20 years ago? I uh, call taking us class. Really? That would be cool. I don't know. Huh. Maybe. How do you spell his name? Wrong? Dharma, like oh, the Dharma, yeah. like the pillar. Mitra, M-I-T-R-A, M-I-T-T-R-A, maybe. And so um, the poses and the breath work that were associated with the healing were really huge, especially like alternate nostril breathing. How many of you have done alternate nostril breathing? Right, there's different breath ratios to do with that, and there's different ways with alternate nostril breathing that you can heal yourself and create a lot of space in your body-mind connection. Um, and um, there's been science... I'm just grabbing the clock. There's been scientific studies that show um, our class goes till 12.30, correct? Mm -hmm. okay. So there's been scientific studies that show you can cure asthma, you can cure diabetes, you can cure a lot of these um, ailments just by breathing. So that's kind of cool. Um, and then it says, um, why do you think that there are long holds? in an Iyengar yoga practice? Partly discipline and partly sitting in the, the pose. Yeah. Taking to, it into your body. Right. To like really breath. sit and stew and use your breath. Yeah. And then in turn, your cells start to work and then they start to sweat. And then all of a sudden you're holding a pose and you feel the fatigue and then your mental mind stuff starts to get and you're going back and forth like on a teeter-totter until you start to really relax into the harmonizing effects. So in this... Yeah. So in this practice, so is, is the whole, like what would be the proper amount of a hold? Is it a, a few breath cycles? Like what, what would he say? So I have been to Iyengar classes and you can, anybody else can chime in um, 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 where we've only done five poses in the whole class. Yeah, it's like an hour and a half in five poses. I held a warrior two once, and my Iyengar teacher went to the bathroom. And 25 <laughs> minutes later, we're still in warrior two. Okay. Yeah, the, the first Iyengar, that was my first exposure to yoga was Iyengar. And I remember coming back and saying, you know, people don't, don't get it, but I sweat standing still. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the... So, the Sorry. Yes, please. I need more. I say I need more. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, um, the light on yoga, the book you just passed around, uh, it says some, some, asas, some asanas not to hold too long, but some of them, as you feel more comfortable, you can hold them longer, you know, like Sarvangasana, Sistasana, mm -hmm. Padmasana, mm -hmm. like that. Um, so I, I guess I'm, just my comment is that it varies, you know, some, some poses you can hold longer. But again, going back to the the main theme that Siram uh, Sukam uh, Asana, that is, you know, they should be comfortable, so not to damage, because we hear some people, even sitting in 
Vajrasana where you, you know folded legs. Yeah. I heard, uh, uh, I think uh, last year an article came up in New York Times about somebody in, in, in New York, one of the students was standing and doing this because when you're meditating, you can sit in that pose for a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and um, he started noticing, you know, tingling and you know, other kinds of neurological issues. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because he was going beyond the comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that that is what Ayurveda is about, is learning to listen to your body signals. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm uncomfortable. That's enough of that. Right. But knowing what that, what that edge is for you and really calling on the breath to help you kind of maintain that. Yeah, I think that's another indication, at least my theory is that breath is important because if you're not comfortable, your breath is going to get affected. Right. Correct. That's the first thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. That's awesome. Yes. I always found this almost harder. I mean, to just move so slowly or just holding the poses. And it's kind of like counterintuitive, I think, that it would be so hard to move so slowly or hold it for so long. But, mm-hmm. um, and then I just remember Katie Schuler saying in our anatomy series how like isometric contractions mm-hmm. are more strengthening. There's no momentum. So mm-hmm. just, you know, how much that, how, how strengthening it is, too, just to... Do the isometric, yep. Mm -hmm. No, it's huge. Yeah. And uh, I'll read you a quote that kind of relates to what we're talking about right now that that Iyengar wrote Um, because I think that he was such an elegant wordsmith. I just love sharing all these quotes. But you must purge yourself before finding faults in other. When you see a mistake in somebody else, try to find if you are making the same mistake. This is the way to make judgment and to turn it into improvement. Do not look at others' bodies with envy or with superiority. All people are born with different constitutions. Never compare with others. Each one's capacities are a function of his or her internal and strength. Know your capacities and continually approve upon them. Because it is through your body that you realize you are a spark of divinity. Yeah, right? We should put that on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. Thanks, Ursula. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's good. Um, but what's interesting to me is that, like, um, I'm a word person. A lot of you might not like philosophy or words and stuff like that. People come into your classes because they want the hero physique. They want a tight yoga butt. They want to like, you know, um, quote unquote work out. It's not what we're doing on the mat as teachers. It's not what you're teaching at all. You're teaching them a lifestyle that will last until their last breath and a way to calm the fluctuations of the mind so that you can, and this is when we start going on to what the yoga poses are for on your page two, so that you can find your shtira sukha asanam, so that you can shift smoothly into the inner state of equilibrium and peace, so that everything is steady and easeful in your life. Hmm. I think that's one of the things that like, I found intimidating about wanting to teach, is like, how do you, like this quote says, 
how do you how do you do it justice? How do you present it in a way that doesn't eclipse the depth of what the practice gives the practitioner? You know, because people come into a room with certain ideas and they're like, it's not really you know. I mean, just before taking any kind of training, I'd have friends be like, you should teach me. And I'm like, I don't even know where to begin. Like, I have a lot of practice, but I don't know how to, like, do it justice, you know? Mm -hmm. It's such an experiential thing that maybe you don't have to. <laughs> um, so I th that's a great, great question or, like, thing to reflect upon mm -hmm. and to ask yourself. Um, I think that all of us are doing the best that we can. Right. Just like Iyengar. You know, he was constantly learning and constantly studying because we're all teaching from experiences. What, there's like 25 of us in here? Mm -hmm. We're all having different weird fucking conversations in our mind. <laughs> we are. We're all on a totally different page, right? So you're going to teach from what your passion is. You're going to teach from where you're at at that time, and then you might start evolving. Mm -hmm. But whatever you have to offer is freaking fantastic. Because you have this spark of divinity within and it needs to be shared, right? You, not, you need to let your heart sing and you need to share what your passion is because it's going to be a catalyst for change, not only in yourself, right? But in anybody that you come in contact with. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's yoga. It's not really about like, um, oh, I don't know how to find my words to teach or I don't know... Um, you know, like if I would be able to guide my friends in a practice, but it's like, what, what is your passion? Cause we call, um, Iyengar a guruji, right? But we call a, someone who is a teacher, um, of a students, a guru, right? But truly, and I tell everybody this, when you study the yoga sutras with me, guru means out of the darkness and into the light. You are your own guru. All you're doing is peeling away your insecurities, your shoulda, coulda, wouldas, your judgment, your preconceived notions, what your partner thinks you should be, which takes years to figure that shit out. <laughs> and uh, just my own little pity party over here. Um, and uh, love the darkness, let in the yes, light. Yes, right. And that. Like, like, you already know this stuff that we're talking about here. You already know the stuff that Iyengar put down on paper. You already know the stuff that you're reading in, like, a yoga sutras um, when you start studying them. It's already there, but we have all these koshas, all these layers that we have put upon ourselves. And maybe it's because we're not breathing properly. Maybe it's because, like that person in New York, their ego got to them and they were forcing themselves into a position and holding it for too long. I've known people who've done pranayama for too long and cracked a mirror and had a psychotic break. You know, I've known people who've done poses for too long and can't do yoga anymore because they were trying to keep up with all their friends and hurt themselves. You know, you can do that in any discipline. You just have to really trust yourself. And then in turn, you'll be the best guru, you'll be the best ex teacher, you'll be the best um, learner because you're sharing your passion, your knowledge. Right, Lynn? Can I ask a question? Yeah. May I? I so I'm like, as I'm listening to this, like, I've always been a little like put off because of having to hold the poses for so long, yeah. and then the ego comes into play, and it's like, oh my god, I want to quit. Everybody still holds, like, 25 minutes in one pose. Like, I would be on my mat, on my face, I think. 
That's okay. But I'm like, it sounds like, but with his concept of beat, kick, and shout, like, I don't understand, like, so that sounds very aggressive, but then, yet, it's not? I'm confused. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, it seems like so in, he's so enlightened, and it's like, away from the ego, and it's okay if you don't get there, then it will be next time, but I'm just a little confused. Like, so when he was teaching, like, if you didn't hold the pose not long enough, he was yelling at you? Like, I don't understand. Sorry, I'm a little Yeah, confused. you're going to die, and you're, you're not going to go to yoga land. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but I'm just, like, confused by it. No, like, I, I totally mean, I, get it. Yeah. I want to do it. It's I, a like, very militant... Dis it, it's, it, it was... Let's... I have a teacher who I studied with um, starting, like, over 20 years ago, right? I used to think he was the biggest dickhead. Right. Right? And he was so mean and stuff like that. And then he cut his ponytail off and he got really nice. <laughs> yes. oh, right? And he's an But you know what I learned? It wasn't that he got nicer. Iyengar realized that in order to take this discipline to the West, they had to change a little bit of the way that they communicated to their students. So that beat, kick, um, what did I say? Beat, kick, and shout? Yeah. That had to evolve. Right. Because if I live in a culture where it's a subservient culture and it's a caste system, which I guess in a kid in Edina, like a 14-year-old kid wrote a book about the India caste system yeah. just recently and like um, is selling really well because he wanted to learn about his history. But if you come from that, then you understand that that's how people communicate. It's just a different way. We're Americans. We are into the bigger, better, best and the big O, right? We like capitalism and we want the easy way out mm -hmm. you can't take the easy way out when you're learning a discipline when you're learning a practice right and this makes me want to go do it i'm just saying like when you were in that class i mean everybody stayed in those poses for as long as the teacher went to the oh bathroom. yeah but i'm just like did anybody give up or was everybody just so deep in their practice <laughs> you're so like... deep in your own shit yeah that you're stewing in it yeah. Uh, if someone said something, you'd be like, oh my God, I was the one who said something. So then your ego's thinking about that. Right. If you're the one who moved, you're like, oh my God, then so-and-so is, you know, so it's, it's different because you're in your own kind of mental mind stuff. But if you close your eyes and sit back and find repose in the pose, mm -hmm. then you are mm -hmm. space. Right. You're it. You're yeah. not really doing it. Your energy, your vibrations, you're like the whole of the whole. You're like what yoga is all about. That balance of two totally different things. And on the second side of your page where it talks about the ha and the ta, you're finding that you're balancing out these things that are internal, that really F with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just think that we're like, I never noticed until I started doing yoga, but there's a lot of ego in yoga, I found, like different studios I've gone to and people are like showing how they can go extra and do this pose yet and then like you feel inadequate and you get in your brain, right? You know what I mean? So I'm just saying like... I'm getting just, hot. But you know what I mean? So it's just like, change, I don't know. It's interesting. That's called kleshas. Yes, no. Right. Yeah. So we all know what kleshas are, yes? Right? Okay, so this isn't this fun? It's like a... It's like a... Um, word class um so kleshas are those kind of like those maybe it's the aversions the raga and the devashas the the things that you really get passionate about or the things that you really get um freaked out by 
And in this line here, when he said, when you see a mistake in somebody else, try to find it if you're making the same mistake, mm -hmm. right? Well, when I grew up, it was like, well, if you spot it, then you got it. So you better change your attitude, Jess. <laughs> That's what I used to hear. I or I got my mouth again. washed out with lava soap. But, <laughs> but, like, you really, like, have to kind of see things that way. It's like, we have these clashes. We have the, like, the person who always goes to the bathroom when you are doing a hard pose. Because they run away from it. Or the person who does stand up in class and is in a handstand and says, oh, look at me, because they want the attention. That is, there's five different kleshas, and we talk about that when we talk about the Yoga Sutras. So you can kind of be excited about that. Or the person like me who announces, I never do handstands, and I teach yoga. Right. I need that attention. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually, but that's great, you know, like that you, you know, it's awareness practice. I always tell you when you study the sutras is that yoga, um, Patanjali, whomever this entity was, Patanja, Pata Anjali, the words falling down from heaven, right? This stuff transmuted to us somehow, 196 aphorisms, um, was just a right way of living. And that um, when you are practicing these yoga sutras, that is the basis of what Iyengar is teaching through breath and movement, mindful movement practices, is really all about um, psychoanalyzing yourself. Mm -hmm. You're your own therapist. Mm -hmm. Right. It might take 49 years for you to actually hear the words that you're saying in your head mm -hmm. or that you're speaking out loud. Mm -hmm. But whenever you get it, you'll get it, and then all of a sudden, poof, Right? That's what they call self-actualization. That's why we're here on the mat. Yeah. And it's like what you said when you opened up the, what we're into the practice for. Once again, how many people like slow classes? <laughs> oh, okay, well that's why you're here. Because most people in the United States do not like slow things. We like to run around and chase things and there's bears chasing us, and we got to get somewhere fast, and we're all really hurried, right? We need to slow down and relax in the moment in order to be able to realize that it's all going to get accomplished, right? And that's what this practice is kind of teaching. Let me see if I can have another quote. Oh, here's a good one that will relate to this. Yoga is like music, the rhythm of the body the melody of the mind and the harmony of the soul create the symphony of life. Yes. Yoga is like music. The rhythm of the body, the melody of the mind, and the harmony of the soul create the symphony of life. If you anchor yourself in, this is all bullet points from your second page. If you anchor yourself in your gaze, which is your drishti, we learn that where your thoughts go, your, where your mind or your eyes go, your thoughts go. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we learn that we can find pure seeing if we're the observer and tap into the freedom and awareness practices of yoga. 
where yoga is um, another definition of union. I think it means like yuj or to yoke, right? Eggs are always so pretty, right? They all look just this beautiful form. So we have to yoke together all these different facets of ourselves. So um, there's another word that I really like, tejas. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's a Sanskrit word, tejas vinam. You're um, the luster. We have this brilliance, right? Um, if you feel like your mind is persecuting you or you have a situation that's kind of putting you down, you're not going to be sparkly, right? But here, he's saying that it is through your body that you realize you are a spark of divinity. Human beings, if we like to move really fast and your students who are coming to the mat are coming thinking like, oh, I want this really awesome physique. When they start to slow down, they start to realize that they are this spark of divinity. So we get in it through the body. We get into the practice of yoga, especially in the West, through the body. But then we start to elevate into more mindfulness practices where we start to do more slower practices, more um, elegant spaces to learn how to tap into um, more self-regulating practices because we realize, wow, there's something to this shit that's happening. I have a potty mouth today, sorry. Um, when you're on the mat, right? There's just something happening. It's magic. I don't know what it is, but it's really awesome. And then you're not coming for an Ashtanga practice or a Vinyasa practice, but you've evolved into like, oh, I'm going to put my tush to the kush, and I'm going to like really just start to meditate. Or my home practice, I'm going to meditate before I do a 15-minute moving meditation when I used to do an hour and a half every day, and if I didn't do an hour and a half every day, I thought that I was going to freak out right? That my, I wouldn't be stable. There's so many things that happen when we start to tune in, right? And then once we kind of listen, um, that conscious active breath and conditioned response increases the capacity of the body-mind to handle a demand without upsetting the intrinsic equilibrium and sense of well-being. The highest compliment to you as a teacher is if you're teaching like a vinyasa class because you want to pay your bills and your students stop showing up because they've started a home practice. Like, hopefully you know they're still practicing, but they're starting to slow down, so they're not going to come to your vinyasa practice anymore, right? They're not going to need music in their class anymore because all of a sudden they're like, oh, the breath is the thing that's regulating everything that's happening. And now I want to listen to that melody because that melody is starting to change the hertz. H-E-R-T-Z. Yesterday I was in high school. They were like, hurt. I don't want to hurt. <laughs> it was a funny conversation. But, but the hertz in your body resonates on a certain vibration, right? Yeah. So like... Um, uh, and that's the same reason, like you said, you liked um, Ashtanga. That's the same reason that Ashtangis, yogis, always move in breaths of five. We're regulating. Um, so our cells, have you ever um, read a book or seen a book by that Dr. Emoji, the water guy? Oh, yeah. 
Whoa, right? Trippy. The way the consciousness can affect yes. the crystals. Yes, so the molecules and crystals of the water, right, are affected by the hertz, the energy wavelengths. So we have water. We're made of tubes of water. We're over 80% of water. If you held the water and you said, and you got really mad at the water, and then you put the water under the microscope, it would look dirty and gross, and it would be, um, um, it wouldn't be like a pretty snowflake. It would be all like twisted, okay? If you held water and meditated and like said something positive and positive affirmations and like I, I can, I am kind of statements, then you put those cells underneath the water. Do you know what happened to the water? Those molecules were so freaking pretty. And each little one was its own individual design and snowflake. And it was like glowing and radiant. That's what happens inside of us. If our mind starts really, really, really affecting us. Remember, and I'm not a doctor. Some of you actually are certified to teach certain things. I just teach from experience. But I've seen amazing transformations that happen with human beings where they think like, oh, I'm trying to get, I'm finding balance in my life, but actually it's way more than just balance. It's like their um, shift happens. They're changing frequencies. Their change in frequencies changes their um, attitude. So they're all optimistic when they were like pessimistic. Or they, you know, and it just like, that's, that's what the practice offers you. That's what Iyengar offers you. Just looking at the history of um, of yoga since the 70s, Iyengar, Ashtanga, just that little mm -hmm. last couple of decades. Mm -hmm. um, so where did vinyasa come from? And did Iyengar kind of fall out of favor? Did it, you know, how, how did those branches go, you know, kind of move? It seems like most things are vinyasa now. Right, right. Interesting, isn't it? So that was actually one of the notes I wrote as a brain fart this morning. There's really not, there is a flow practice to an Iyengar practice. There are, you can have flow styles to Iyengar, but they aren't often taught. It's more about like therapeutic. Iyengar practices usually start the way that I have experienced it um, is with an inversion practice to start to ground you and get the heat moving through your body. Um, and um, the flow comes from the breath, the mastery of the breath. So my understanding, which is just all like, you know, you can look at, the, you can Google like the great tree of yoga and you can kind of see the lineage and how everything kind of spreads out and gets shared. And Yoga Journal once made this really cool like poster of it. So you could probably find it online. Um, but a uh, bunch of druggies went to India and found bliss. Some of these people stayed and like studied with um, the teachers and realized that the breath is the sweet nectar. We call it in Sanskrit Amrita. So the breath is a sweet nectar that gives your body the soma, which yogis used to take a drug um, and they also did in... Um, Brave New World, they took Soma. <laughs> Interesting word that he chose um, when he wrote the book. 
So people used to take a lot of drugs to get into certain states of consciousness, but as the people started stop taking the drugs and started doing more yoga with these gurus, then they in turn, and this is just my opinion, I have no idea if I'm like blowing hot air, right? Then they started to stop doing the drugs and started realizing, wow, this really works. So they came to the United States and they started bringing um, more vinyasa flowy practices to the States. Westerners. So to Westerners, yep. Mm -hmm. They go over there for like their little trips or whatever, backpacking to find themselves or whatever. And then they would have these epiphanies and these experiences and they would take the practices back here. Mm -hmm. So some people started Jivamukti yoga in New York. Some people started, um, you know, all these different paths of yoga. And um, then when like someone like um, Bikram came here or Patabi Joyce came here or Iyengar came here and they had systems, then they had dis not, not disciples, but you would say like teachers who would teach it. And when people liked more of the dancerly kind of fluidy flowy styles, then there was Beryl Bender Birch or um, Baron Baptiste or different kind of people who started creating more flowy vinyasa styles and then you started getting franchises and chains and now it's you know a trillion dollar business this health and wellness industry so it kind of evolved as people started changing the footprint of the practice to what it has become in western culture as they started to um consumer eyes mainstream yeah mainstream it and like the mat that you practice on is called a tapas mat right so they used to practice on like dung or like a carpet or you know like a, a floor right but then some american guy came home and was like oh i'm gonna take this piece of rubber and like make a mat right and so he started marketing it and making money off of it Iyengar, they make fun of him because he was the furniture yogi and used all these furniture. But look at we 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 buy a strap, we buy a block, we buy a blanket. He never capitalized it on the way that we have evolved it to be right now. And then I just uh, comment on yeah. the Iyengar yoga, mm. how it's practiced in India. Mm. Um, it, it is not a um, what shall I say super popular uh, because. Because of some, you know, a, there's no commercial element to that, um, and, and and also traditionally, uh, yoga is you know is done by ascetics, you know, like uh, so there are people, um, I'm sure that there are many people in India who who know yoga a lot more than Iyengar, uh, because you know you have Ashtanga yoga is the eight part, eight, eight eight steps are there, right? Mm -hmm. And somewhere in the beginning you have yoga. But eventually, you know, you're doing all this so that your body is in a, in a, you know, fit enough to sit in a position uh, comfortably for hours. Mm -hmm. and that, that's what eventually, that's what you're doing yoga for. Mm -hmm. And once you're able to get to that, then you're able to um, meditate and, you know, like look inside. And then and, and the final stage is where your, your, your mind can leave your body, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so that, that's very difficult probably. Um, there may be or may not be anybody who had gone to that stage. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the the thing to keep in mind is that the yoga that we do um, is just a, is scratching the surface. So mm -hmm. there's a lot more. And then also, to we don't need to be 
you know, very flexible and, you know, uh, big yoga uh, um, the practitioners in order to uh, realize the other benefits, you know, that uh, mind, you know, you, if you can sit, maybe not for hours, but if you can sit for 20 minutes mm -hmm. um, and, and uh, calm down and keep your, you know, the, the thoughts not to, you know, move around, uh, that you get an equal benefit. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's the essence of uh, the Sayangar Yoga too, you know. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic, really well stated. Mm -hmm. The Yoga Sutras only mentions movement a very small amount of time in all of it. Maybe talks about movement less than six times in the 196 aphorisms. It's all about getting your body to settle so that you can really get into that higher states of awareness. So it's an energy that we're unwinding. If you think of like Kundalini, um, you're uncoiling the bound stuff, the dis-ease, the discomfort, and you're, when you uncoil that, then everything's really open and in alignment so that you can do really cool stuff. And you know, what's interesting is there's these studies now, you know, consciousness research, you know, mm -hmm. Western, and, and they're, they're really groundbreaking saying, but they're measuring that, exactly what you're describing, yeah. that when beta brain, when, yeah. when you, the beta brain calms down, mm -hmm. they've actually measured the brain waves, uh -huh. and they become coherent, uh -huh. and they slow. So, I mean, I, as a Westerner, I guess we all, I know I need, you know, something that I can I'll really get my hands around to understand. But all of this predates that. Right. Mm -hmm. So That's we, the yogis um, of past, thousands and thousands of years ago, called the little flowing rivers of energy in our body nadis. Right? 72,000 plus meridian lines or send lines or whatever you want to call it. But... Now scientists are saying, oh, that's your central nervous system, mm -hmm. right? And we have these tools that can really kind of calculate and study it. People are studying people in MRIs right now. Do you know that a yoga nidra practice, those of you who are here for yoga nidra, I talked about this a lot, so I apologize, but we talked about the different levels of states that your mind goes into when you go into deep relaxation and release tension. Their pituitary gland is where your chakra is right here. What's this chakra? The third eye, your Anja chakra. Thank you, right? So the intersections of the nadis, the main ones we talk about are the blah, blah, blah um, chakras, right? These little vortexes of energy that spin. And then um, we have um, uh, the Anja chakra right here. Your pituitary gland is very close to here when you're really calm and you get out of the amygdala and your fight or flight which releases cortisol and gets you all amped up and you start really getting into that more of that like calm state of being you release melatonin so a lot of people will be like oh i can feel my third eye opening well if you're really relaxed in a yoga nidra or if you're really aware in a meditation what you're starting to do is you're starting to like actually through the habitual practice train your brain to calm yourself down and secrete positive vibes science is proving something that people already knew because they really listened and observed so yeah 
Totally great point. It's super hard to hold a pose for a really long time. But it's actually fantastic when you do because the vrittis and the chitta, which is always going to happen, but you can choose not to be aware of it, start to calm down. And then all of a sudden, you're just resting in the calm abiding. You have your conscious active breath as your guide, and thoughts come and go. Look at I'm like dancing with my hands. Blah. Mm. Is that an answer? That's awesome. Okay. Uh, Jess? Yeah. Uh, in Light on Yoga, Iyengar mm. uh, talks about uh, uh, you know, a lot of asanas, the effect of uh, the, the, you know, the, how they, they work on the, the hormonal glands, like yeah. you know, your, your, your pituitary, endocrine system, pituitary, yeah. thyroid, mm -hmm. and you know, all those things. Um, the, the Iyengar classes that you, you, you basically you, you have taken, and mm -hmm. do they talk about those at all? Mm -mm. He tells good stories. Uh -uh. A lot of people don't talk about the science behind it. But that's why I like this book. I mean, to me, yeah. this is like the Bible of yoga. When I first started, you know, it was pretty cool. Like I dove in from the philosophy and the trippy stuff. And then I found this book and I was like, oh my God, I want to like really like know everything that's in here. I do have to tell you, um, a lot of Iyengar teachers, especially in the West, don't talk about that kind of stuff. They might write about it. Yeah. Um, so because of liability issues. And yeah, right? right. It's like you can't say that press juice is good for you <laughs> or give it like a, yeah. like a, this helps with your <coughs> pooper to function properly. <laughs> but the interesting thing about this book and... I can send you his name later. Um, I have, I'm having like adult ADD, so I, I mean uh, adult old timers, and I forget names. His name is Matthew. His last name starts with an R. I want to say like Ricard or something like that. But um, Matthew and my, uh, another one of my friends, Michael Stone, who has passed now, they write really good books. Matthew is always writing about like what yoga is really you know like he's a historian he likes to dig deep and find out all kinds of stuff Iyengar actually went to the hospital after doing all these poses because he only took a couple weeks to take this pictures and he hurt himself really badly doing all of these poses to your point you don't do all of these poses all at once it's very similar to the concept that Patabi Joyce talks about in some of his books of yoga chikitsa have you ever heard of yoga chikitsa it's just fun to say, say yoga chikitsa. Yeah, yoga chikitsa, chikitsa, it's like yoga therapy, right? Like chikita banana. So it's, um, people would go, just like Iyengar did, he went to his, uh, his um, sister's husband, um, Guru Krishnamacharya, and he would get a breathwork practice and maybe a couple poses, and then he'd practice, 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 practice. And then after he mastered those or started feeling better, then he would go back and get more. Because each one, layer upon layer, started creating uh, um, a healing thing. It's like when we go to the doctor and they want to give us a pill. Well, instead, in Eastern cultures, they'll give you a breathwork practice. Or they'll say, you're stressed out? Go take baths every night. Go to the bathhouse. You know, go be with your community. Don't work. There's just different 
ways. So yoga chikitsa was this cool therapeutic practice, and now it's become like in yoga um, vinyasa classes are the rage because it relates to our fitness culture. Just a, a comment on that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, for illnesses, you had traditional India had um, Ayurveda, mm -hmm. and Veda, but yoga is part of the thing. So mm -hmm. basically, it, they, they had things. It's not, not that completely, but, but it's a very integral part of treatment. Right, and there's a great book by a guy named Yoga uh, David Frowley. That's uh, yoga and Ayurveda. That's really awesome. But yeah, and that's all. Yeah. It goes hand in hand. These pillars all work together. I appreciate all your feedback. It's no, great. No, no, yeah, I, it's great. Actually, now in the modern medicine here also, they, they're integrating this. Thing. Yeah. Now if you see some of the hospitals, even like Abbott has yoga and things like that are there as part of the treatment. Yeah. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. And I do think, I think Light on Yoga is, is a great book for people just getting into it because... I mean, he does. It's. I mean, it's Everything. not just pictures of poses. I mean, there's a lot of information in there, and he goes through, through you know, yamas, niyamas, pranayama, and touches on all that. Plus, it's fun to go, ooh, which one is a ten? Yeah. <laughs> look up, you know, what's the hardest pose? And yeah. But he gives you practices as well. Yeah. And they start At the out back. Really small, and then they just gradually get larger. But he says, work on this for a long time, and then add on to this. Mm -hmm. And what's neat, I think, is he gives the stories behind the poses. Like, why is half Lord of the Fishes called half Lord of the Fishes? What is tortoise pose all about? You know, like, that, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of information. I mean, it's a great, my only frustration with it is the text and the pictures don't always sync up. So you have to, like, go back right. to, yeah. funny. to go and find the pose here. Yeah. But, but there's tons of information. And it's dense, but don't be in I mean, don't be intimidated. Just think of it as like, oh, it's another, it's another guide for me to use. Yeah, you know? and it's just, it's just, it really does. It has everything in it. So why do you think it's not in our? No, 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 no. I asked that question. I actually asked that question of Tara the other day too, when we were talking about it. And, or actually, Jen Brandt. I was asking Jen Brandt when she was here last week, and she said Jen Brandt picked the books. And you're all here today and um, everybody got a strap and a block right yes okay so we're gonna do something with our strap and block but what I want to do is do you two gentlemen not mind being a partner sure. and then we'll just go so it'll be two and two and you only need uh, and, uh, two and two and two and two and two, and two, and two, and two, and two, and you need to pull it Okay, oh, you got stuck with me last time. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so I'm gonna just show you a couple fun things that we can try. I'm not gonna show you like the chair um, shoulder stands or anything like that because when you go out today and buy on Amazon a used book of Light on Yoga, it's very inexpensive, and then you'll have it in your house and you can look at all the cool pictures of how they use props. Okay, or you can go to um, my friend William's class at Bar Bliss, which is fantastic. Okay, and I will tell you where that is. But let's do this with our partner. A really interesting thing is triangle pose, right? 
So in triangle pose, when you are in the pose, a lot of people, um, if their ashtangis try to grab their toes, a lot of people try to um, uh, uh, just get really contorted in it. But there's a great adjustment that you can do in triangle pose that is an Iyengar adjustment that I want you to feel that helps you get into alignment. One of the interesting things that we used to do, I just want to mention this before we go further, is um, in Iyengar studios, they also have dowels. Dowel. Um, any furniture builders here? Right? Past life. Um, so you can take a dowel or a measuring a ruler that you got like from the state fair and you can take it and the dowel will go right here. And this is why they're in the Iyengar studios. What you do is you have that rod right here and then you put a strap around yourself and you hold it there. And then you have to realign your spine to find the natural curvature is fine, but what we want to do is realign and engage muscles from within so that there's, you can't get any space behind your, um, so that you're touching the dowel, okay, from tailbone to the back of the head. We're going to feel what that feels like right now, so everybody stand up. We don't have a dowel, but what I would like you to do is stand with your heels against the wall before we do triangle pose, so you don't need your strap. And as you stand against the wall, make your arms into goalpost arms. Okay? Your heels are against the wall. You have to create space for your badonkadonk, but you want to see how you feel. If you shut the bathroom door, someone can lean against the bathroom door. Okay? Now... Um, it, it looks like you're in a lineup, but you're not. Um, readjust, uh, take your dominant hand. Can you fit your hand behind your back? Okay, if you can fit your hand behind your back, that's awesome, but that's not where we're going. So readjust and put your hand, hands back up into goalpost arms. And uh, then take and readjust pubic bone and tailbone so that you start to activate and get your um, body more engaged. So there's less room between you and the wall in your back body, in your lower lumbar. What do you feel as you do that? What? Spine lengthen. Spine lengthen? Hips adjusted. Hips adjusted? Right? You start to engage the abdominal walls, but actually you're trying to really start turning in your bandhas to create some energy, right? Now relax your arms. It's very hard to keep our shoulders open, palms face forward, and draw the shoulders back. There are little triangles that are supposed to fit in your back pocket, but they don't always do that. Good. Now try and walk away from the wall, grab your block, put this um, into your muscle memory, put the block on top of your head like you're in elocution school, and walk around the room. Try and keep that same alignment that you just created. Oh, none of you are rushing anywhere. 
Hada, I am here. Are you breathing? No. No. Okay. No, don't forget to breathe. I love your smile, Stephanie. Are you noticing that you're taking deep, different steps with your feet? Yeah. 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 That you're creating more of the arc of intelligence at the sole of the foot, that your legs are more active participants, that your belly is actually rhythmically engaged in the deep diaphragmatic breath, your shoulders, your collarbones, your sternum's lifted, everything's open. <laughs> Some people don't have the um, that little soft spot. Awesome. You can drop your block and walk back to your space. Yeah. How did that feel, everyone? Yeah. So that's the idea of having the rod with the strap. Um, we don't have the dowels for everybody, but that's a good way to kind of do that. So what I'm going to do with my partner is my partner is going to come into triangle pose by um, placing the left foot to the top of the mat, and that's how we'll know. Stepping the right foot back and finding her space. You are going to decide who's the teacher, who's the student. Make sure that you have space away from the wall, so maybe have your student uh, face towards the wall with the left foot. But what you're going to do is you're going to help facilitate traction. One of the things I really like about Iyengar practices is the rope wall. Rope walls are magical. And do not tell the person who teaches the aerial classes that they're just mimicking something that was done from a long time ago. But when you do any of these acro aerial classes, all you're doing is emulating a rope wall. It's just traction from the ceiling versus attached to the wall, okay? So I am pretending that I'm a rope wall. I've got the strap on the iliac crest, so everybody touch the top of your hips. I've got it right at the iliac crest. It's not in front of the privates. It's more like up at the hip bone. And I'm taking my um, side of my left foot, because their left foot's forward, and I've got the strap wrapped around. She's going to open her arms like a T. She's going to reach her left hand forward. Left arm comes down. Right arm reaches up. Now I am literally manipulating the hips to stay in Tadasana and her body to stretch properly. So she's reaching the left arm down and reaching the right arm up in equal yet opposite directions. But I can say spiral left cage rib, rib cage higher than the right and lengthen through the top of the head, and she's actually able to feel it versus forcing it. And then exhale and come on up. So exhale to come up, and you're really holding your friend. You're not like faking it, okay? So one is the teacher, one is the doer. If you have questions, I'll walk around. Yeah. 
and using all kinds of cool things to readjust your body because if your body is your autobiography and you want to change, change comes from within, right? And with every inhale and every exhale, you really allow yourself to find some peace. Uh, it is interesting because Iyengar, and I'll read you one more quote, um, was really amazing and he was a luminary and he did write these incredible books that I highly recommend you as teachers read because of the legacy that he um, left is able to live on through his words and his books. Um, as Iyengar realized that we can do much to strengthen ourselves against disease through the practice of yoga while we are well. That's why we come to the mat. And when we are ill, we can do much to reduce or even eradicate the dis-ease and discomfort so that we can come to find the whole of the whole, so that we can really come back to being centered. So here's the quote. You do not need to seek freedom in a different land, for it exists within your own body, heart, mind, and soul. You are yoga. Feel that brightness radiating through your body. Feel this steady and easeful state as you anchor yourself in the breath. As you tap into your prana, your inner reservoir of power. And you truly do create freedom. and peace of mind. And that's all she wrote. Your tech is over. Now you have to find a way out of your straps. <laughs>